Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. I was going to be doing some national programming with a national coming up, and yet I was asked by John Newman to give some reaction to some of his questions, and he had it on his Sports Card Nation special episode. Highly recommend that you go to that, but this is 13 minutes of some of that conversation. I thought would be appropriate to share with my particular audience. I know there's some overlap there, but not as much. But thanks sponsors, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, Comsi.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Panini, Upper Deck, and Tops. Here it is. Thanks, John, for the good questions to take me back what is now more than 40 years. I've been to every national and some of those early ones. I still have some memories, and they're great memories pretty much of every national. So thanks for provoking that, John, and thanks, listeners. Hope you enjoy. As always, go to the original source, John Newman, Sports Card Nation. A lot of good content there. What can you fill us in on from 1980? You mentioned feeling guilty. The only guilt I feel is guilty that I feel so happy when I go to the national and I have so much fun. It's just a great getaway and it's gotten better over the years. In the beginning, like you say, 1980 was more the perception. It was intending to be a national, but it still felt like a really big regional show. Even though there were national dealers there, it didn't look different. It looked like a real big show real successful show. When you walked around, you see, wow, these guys are from the East Coast. These guys are from the Midwest. So it wasn't like a Los Angeles show. I remember you walked in and there was like a step down to the show floor, but it wasn't that big. It was thousands of square feet, but not hundreds of thousands of square feet. You could see the rows of tables. There wasn't a, a lot of action up in the air. They were mainly six foot tables, not even a lot of showcases. And when people left their table, they put a sheet on it. They didn't zip it up. So it was very old-fashioned, very old-school, and very trusting. But that's the way it was. And frankly, John, it stayed that way for 10 years. Then, like I said, in the 91, Anaheim National was a turning point because that was way bigger crowd, a lot more corporate support, and it was just a completely different animal. And that maybe has been the most successful one ever. Although Chicago last year was pretty close, and I'm hoping that this year is going to be really outstanding getting back to the East Coast as well. How well received was that one right off the bat, Los Angeles? Were people a little trepidation? Very well received. The founders, Gavin Riley, Steve Bruner, and Mike Burkus, were very well respected as serious collectors, as dealers, and as promoters, because they were already putting on very successful shows in the L.A. area. They already had a track record. People liked them. They respected them and they trusted them. And other than that, John, it might not happen. Gavin Riley was the unsung hero and he's still around. He was a school teacher, very serious collector, had a fabulous collection. And then Mike Burke was a megaphone. He was the master promoter. And Steve Bruner was a force in his own, but not as out there as the other two guys. Obviously, the National now has a heavy corporate presence, which I actually, I think it's important. How about the early ones? Were they less corporate? Obviously, there's less companies. We could talk to to the companies, and I was not part of any of the leadership. I was in the hobby, and I was a person that had some weight. And if you talk to the card companies about, you really ought to set up the National, they go, why? Everybody at the National already knows who we are. We don't need brand awareness. We're tops or we're Donruss or we're Fleer. But then what happened, John, is when one of them does it, then the other ones say, wait a minute, we don't want them to get an edge on us. So it started creeping in. 
And again, I really thank Mike Burkus for that. Mike Burke had worked for Classic at one time and had done some consulting for some of the card companies. And he was a master negotiator. So he tried to figure out a way to get him in because he knew once he got him in, they would want to be there and they'd see the value. By Anaheim in 91, they were there to stay. Tops, they were the first one in for doing cards, but they're not an early adopter back in those days. They weren't. So the underdogs, the Donners and the Fleer, Upper Deck immediately got in. Upper Deck was at the National in 88. They barely had a company. They had a strong presence in 88, which was the original Atlantic City show. They were passing out these promos and people said, wait a minute, this is going to be a dollar a pack. I don't know if that's going to fly. But they've always seen the value of an upscale product and taking the marketing seriously. And they've had a great success because of that. What was the first year you and the company Beckett attended as a corporation? Do you remember? Well, I will say this. In 80, I shared a table with Gervis Ford, who was my partner in first base. Yep. And so at that point, probably right around that time, I took my show inventory. I had my collection and I set that aside and I had some better trade material that was more serious stuff. For example, my Jackie Robinson 48 Leaf. I did not put that in the store stock. Otherwise, it would be long gone now. But the basic inventory that I took to shows in the 70s, I merged that in with Gervis's stuff, and he already had a store going, and we calculated the value, and I put in basically enough to be a 50% partner. Basically, that's when my collecting pretty much stopped. I already had a lot of the sets. I just set them aside, and I was no longer a dealer at that point, but I still had interest in the store. That first table that Gervis and I had He mainly was behind the table, and he wasn't there very much. It was a side gig for both of us. We both had good jobs. We were out walking around. That's the perspective. You're saying with no one at the table? No one at the table. No one at the table. And there was some nice stuff there. We just throw a sheet over it and tell the neighboring dealer, hey, we're going to be back in a couple hours. We're just going to go browse. But that was the turning point for me to be moving toward type collecting. Instead of buying collections and buy, sell, trade, and being like a dealer, when the price guides came out, I really was trying to improve the price guides, which meant buying type cards and not big collections and things like that. So every national now, even though we've had corporate booths, it's always been a case where I've been way more time on the other side, not behind the table, but out in front, wandering around. Like Rich does. Rich was our guy that did that, but I wanted to do what Rich was doing. I didn't want to sit behind the table or the booth or behind the wall. In setting up as a dealer, something I've done since 1987 myself, how were those national shows as far as selling? Were they productive? Were you happy with how you did? Again, it was a vintage crowd, especially in the 80s. You're approaching not necessarily junk wax, but it was too easy to get the basic sets. Mostly it was pre-war. It was regional cards, hot dog cards, things like that. Uh, These were veteran collectors slash dealers those first few years. Dealers that set up with their duplicates in order to trade or sell in order to get cards they needed. That's what was fun. There's always interesting stuff there. And I've been very blessed to be on the side of the national tables to be able to wander around and see, like being a kid in a candy store, being in the museum and being able to see all that stuff instead of being stuck behind a table. Whenever I'd get behind the table, people just ask me questions and they'd ask me the same questions over and over again. I thought, I need to get on the other side and go seek out what I want. So I've done that for 40-something years now. And like I said, the only guilt I feel is that it's so much fun. Yeah. 
Do you remember the first national that Beckett Media with the price guides attended? Let me put it this way. The price guide was a big deal in 80, but that was the annual. There wasn't any monthly until 84. And we started late in 84. In fact, the final formation decisions were made really at the Parsippany 84 National. I had some strategies of how I might do it. And I talked to some people. And at the end of that show, I knew what I was going to do. And I knew how I was going to go about it. It crystallized at that national. The first issue was in November of 84. And so then by 85, yeah, we're there and we're selling. Even though we sold subscriptions, so much of it was selling through dealers that we'd sold back issues. Pretty much in the mid-late 80s, we'd have some kind of a presence. It wasn't like a corporate booth because I don't think corporate booths really existed. You either had a table or you didn't. But then by 91, somehow we made a trade with Berkus, who loved trading, cards or anything. He would negotiate anything. And so we'll give you some publicity in the magazines and then we'll get a corporate booth, free ads in the magazines, all that stuff. But what we did is you weren't allowed to sell stuff in the corporate area. And so we kept our dealer booths. And Rich Klein has told the story. We were able to merge it in with Rich's table priority. And so we had some really good location near the front where we were able to sell stuff. Mainly that was back issues, mainly baseball. But by 91, the other sports were kicking in too. But we did a great business in older superstar cover, early baseball, monthly magazines. Obviously, Beckett Media became uber successful. How much credit do you attribute to the national presence in the emerging of your company? Like I said about Tops, is that people would say, you need to be there for brand awareness. I'm saying, we already have the brand awareness. So we needed to have some objectives for being there other than saying, hey, we're here, we're nice guys. At every big show, we had our price analysts there anyway. So we already were doing that. What the difference was for us in the 80s And the early 90s, we paid our way by doing back issues. And we signed up people and we sold books and things like that to encourage subscriptions. But we paid our way by publications, print. By 99, though, (laughs) with grading coming on, that was a whole nother story. And so then we clearly had to have a corporate presence, not a secretive booth, but we had to have the draping and the private room for the graders. And that's just taken off like gangbusters. Yeah, no doubt. Were there autograph guests in the early days or was that something added later on? It it increased as it went. It didn't start out like it was. Again, he's not an unsung hero because he's well-established. But Jeff Rosenberg really had a vision. And so it's been outsourced to him for a long time to really make it work. Because you can't make it work by just athletes showing up and signing for the people that are in the line. You have to have a year-round autograph business because a lot of the signers come in and they sign for the people in line, but then they sign some other stuff for later sale to make it worth it for everybody. So those first ones, yeah, there were some stars there sometimes, but that wasn't the drug. I think it was 80% cards and probably 80% of the cards were vintage. Some autograph stuff, some memorabilia stuff, but a lot of it was cards. So the autograph was a draw, but people were already going to come. Like now, people would already come anyway because the dealers are the stars and the card companies are the stars. Yeah, I like to think the cards themselves, too. And the cards, yeah. 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 You mentioned the grading, 99, adding the grading aspect to the repertoire and the national effect with it. Obviously, you didn't necessarily need the national to launch that, but I'm sure it didn't hurt. How was it received? Well, no, John, it would have hurt if we weren't there. 
Because yeah. at that yeah. point, PSA had a huge lead on us. We need to be there to say, hey, we think we're a better alternative. We are an alternative. And they were in first place and still are in terms of volume, for sure. But more than doubled the cost of us showing up at the national. It more than doubled our footprint of being there. It more than doubled the complexity, the number of people we had to take and all that stuff. It was the right thing to do. But like I said, if we wouldn't have gone, it would have been a negative. And people say, why aren't they coming? Because you need to subject yourself, not necessarily to abuse, but to hear from the customer. And there's always going to be some customers who want to tell you how to run their business. And ignoring them is the worst thing you can do. And so listening to them and say, look into it. I say at that point, how competitive was that entering that arena? Were there open lines of communication or not really? Hey, we're competing for the same piece of the pie. I've had Joe Orlando on and he was a very worthy competitor and an outstanding guy, but we tried not to compete. We tried to be different. And so yeah. PSA really had but a strong... But then with the subgrades came. Well, we had subgrades, we had inner sleeve, we had a, a heavier, stronger holder. But also we marketed more aggressively to the average collector and not so much to the yeah. dealers. And we went more toward modern than vintage. They always had a very strong vintage and very strong relationships. The dealers were the original bulk submitters. And we thought, we don't want to make it a special elite kind of thing that you've got to know somebody. And we didn't charge extra for expensive cards. We had a lot of differentiators. We didn't make it, you join a club or anything. You just send us some cards. And in those days, we had on-timer, it's free. So yeah. we had a guarantee. Yeah, because even that. then, PSA had yeah. trouble because they had so much volume. And so that really helped us get on well, the map. I remember that because yeah. I'd be like, man, I hope it's late by you. Exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, it's funny. You forget that, and then you hear that, and you're like, yeah, I remember well, It wasn't funny when I was the boss. It was coming out of my pocket, John. <laughs> and I never, listen, I subbed. I never, it never happened. So, to back in back then, because I was crossing my, I just wanted it a day late where I didn't have to. I hear you. I hear you. 